Listener Production. It's not often that I'm lost for words, but recently a dear friend of mine suffered a sudden pregnancy loss at 19 weeks. I supported her as best I could, but I felt like nothing I was doing or saying was any help at all. I wasn't sure if she wanted space or whether I should be contacting her more. Did she want to talk about it or just get on with her life? Having not suffered a miscarriage myself, I feel very ill-equipped to be a good, supportive friend, even though my heart is in the right place. This is Healthy Her with Amelia Phillips. With one in four pregnancies ending in miscarriage or stillbirth, chances are someone close to us will experience it needing support. But knowing exactly how to support them, when to step in and when to give them space can be really difficult. And what is the support that we should be offering? What do you say to someone who has experienced such an immense loss? Jan Swerdloff is an end-of-life doula and bereavement outreach worker for Red Nose and Sands. Jan, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Amelia. So tell me about the work that you do. As a bereavement outreach worker for Sands and Red Nose, um, I'm a part of a team of women who all have lived experience. We've all suffered our own pregnancy losses and we work in the community to offer emotional and practical support to other women and families who have suffered a loss. So the program is very much client-driven. The support provided is such that each person has a say in what they need support with. So when I say practical support, it could be support with memory making, with organising photography so their baby can be photographed. It could be help with funeral and memorial arrangements. It could be attending appointments. Mm -hmm. You know, often parents when a baby has died have to go to appointments that can be quite triggering walking back into a hospital and so we are able to be there to attend an appointment to sit as a an autopsy report is talked through and to be that person there to take notes to listen and support the parent in that space I've offered support at the places of employment interviews about return to work, helping parents to find a way to return in a transitional way to their workplace. It can be one of the hardest things around a pregnancy loss. Absolutely. When the last time they were in the workplace, there were balloons and cakes and, you know, the send-off and and also the reaction of the people around you when you've experienced something like that, which is kind of what I want to get into today. Tell me, with that work you do, how do you get connected with the parents? Is it something that's offered in the hospital when it happens or do they have to seek you out through Red Nose and Sands? So there's a few ways. It can be um, through a hospital and each in each state there's a pilot hospital for this program as the program is a pilot program. And so families that go through the hospital in each state can be referred by the bereavement midwives and social workers. But there's also community referrals that happen. So a person can Mm self-refer through the Red Nose or SANS website. Okay. 
you can be referred by calling the 1300 mm-hmm. SANS support line. People who put their name down for counselling mm-hmm. through Red Nose are often referred to this program while they wait for a counsellor to be um, assigned to them. So there's a number of ways. Oh, it's great to know for any of the mums listening that if they did want to, you know, refer their loved one to your services, they can literally just, you know, go on the Red Nose or the SANS website and seek it out that way. And is it something that's done face-to-face or over the phone or it's really bespoke based on each individual situation? It is bespoke. So, The ideal is to be face-to-face. So I've had the opportunity to be at the hospital and to be with the family after their baby has been born and to even meet their baby. Um, You know, sometimes the families will have their baby in the room with them, in the Mm. cooling cot. Oh, gosh. So that might be the first place that we meet. I might not meet them until a bit later, so it might be in the family home. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we go for a walk. So I've done some lovely walks with mums, um, you know, in nature, by the water, uh, near to wherever they live. With COVID, of course, the, the calls are on Zoom now, which, which is still effective. It's not absolutely ideal. Yeah. But it's also meaning that we're able to support families who are a bit more remote, so people who are not living near where the program is being run. So I've supported yeah. families in Canberra. Yeah, and I've also had support sessions with grandparents in France with wow. with an interpreter um, in Ireland. Gosh. So it's trying to be wherever the need is. I'm just I'm sitting here with tears streaming down my face, just already so emotional, just thinking about what these poor families have to go through and what support you would be offering. Is it is it something that they pay for, or is it? you know, funded by the foundation? So at the moment, it's funded by the federal government and it's completely free to families. Wonderful. And the support service runs over three months with up to 10 support sessions. Wow. So you can imagine that over those 10 months, the needs for that family change. Yeah. And, you know, we start to see some healing taking place incrementally. Yeah. But, you know, it's wonderful to see the change that this program can make for the families who are a part of it. Uh, It's so good to know that there's a program like yours out there. Now, Jan, you very sadly suffered a stillbirth at 39 weeks. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience? Yeah. So um, I've heard my story quite a few times come back at me from some of the mums that I've worked with So it's not unusual. Mm. But, yeah, I went to my last GP visit. I was going through a public hospital and I had a a GP who had an expertise in obstetrics. I was living in the Blue Mountains. And I went for my final visit. Everything was going really well. Um, I was healthy, happy. Baby number one or two? Number two. Yeah, well, we had a six-year-old. So I had our first baby when I was um, almost 22, a uni student. (laughs) Yeah, and so we decided to sort of wait until we were ready second time around. And and by the time our firstborn, Emma, was five and she was at school, it was like, oh, I think I think we're ready. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we we tried and, and fell pregnant and had a wonderful 
pregnancy, moved to the Blue Mountains um, in a house that we'd built up there. And, yeah, that last check, there was no heartbeat. Oh, my goodness. And so it was that, oh, you know, that ultimate shock and devastating news. And, of course, you know, you just you just have no idea. It's not... It's not really um, under your radar unless no. you've, you've heard about someone else or you know someone personally. So I just could not imagine how this had happened. Yeah. It was, it was complete shock. Um, and then I realised that, oh, my God, I was going to give birth to my baby and, and he or she, it ended up being a little girl, was not going to be alive. Um, wow. But even at a very young age, I think I was, I was already thinking, I've got to get through this. I've got to be there for our daughter, Emma. I've got to survive. So how do I do that? Um, and I started making choices about the birth quite quickly that I didn't want. Um, I wanted to be aware of what was going on. I knew that I had to be in this experience to, to work through it. So, yeah, it was... It was so difficult, but um, I, I had a wonderful midwife and that made it a lot better. Did you have to wait for your body to go into labour naturally or did they induce your labour? So I left the hospital. I was sent home and told to come back in the next morning. So I had an afternoon and evening at home and then um, we went to the hospital the next day to be induced but I, I did go into labour, so wow. that happened with our first one too. I went into hospital to be induced and then went into labour, so oh. I think my body has a way of going, ah, oh. just get on with it. <laughs> yeah. And then what was the experience like going through labour knowing that you were going to give birth to a baby that wasn't alive? It was, it was, really, um, it was really quite beautiful. And it was, I mean, it was scary, but I had, I had support with me. I had my husband. I had my cousin um, who uh, was a nursing sister and had also lost a baby. And she was with me and I had a beautiful midwife and a wonderful doctor. So I had great support in the space and I was given control. And, you know, um, as I gave birth, the miracle of birth is present with you as you give birth, whether your baby is alive or, or has died. Right. And then your baby is as beautiful as any baby that you will ever oh, deliver. That's beautiful. It's, yeah, um, and it was, it was really amazing. And it was the only birth that I actually watched myself. My midwife said, you, you need to watch this, Jan, and handed me a mirror. Wow. Which I held and I watched her come. Um, with my other two births, I, I, I didn't. Yeah. I, yeah. You know, it was, but I'm very grateful um, that that happened. Yeah. Why are you grateful for that? What was it about that, that, that you look back on with gratitude? That it's another memory. Yeah. And, and it, it really um, made it all real. Yeah. I think one of the things is that, um, you can lose the the um, the actual fact that you are giving birth to a baby and you are this baby's mother. You're not going to take your baby home and and watch watch them grow up. 
but they're your child. And so you want every bit of that you can grab onto. And that was just another bit that I was able to take with me. I don't have a video of it yep. Or, yep. or anything, but I've got that in my head and I'll never forget it. Oh, I can imagine. And what did you do in the preceding days after she was born? I mean, you obviously held her and had your time with her. And, and what happens after that? Well, for me, um, you know, it was 32 years ago last week, so uh-huh. it was a long time ago and, and things were quite different. Yep. We do have a couple of photos that were taken by our midwife. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, we didn't have a lot of time with her. Our daughter came in and met her um, and her first sort of reaction was, oh, what's all that on her? Yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the midwife said, oh, Emma, would you like to bathe her? She needs a bath, don't you think? And so... I watched as um, Emma bathed her baby sister. Wow! Um, and and dressed her, and we spent time with her. And then, um, you know, we had to leave the hospital without her. Of course, today, I I would be able to stay in the hospital for a number of days and have her with me, and I would be able to take her home if I wanted to, um, and have a cooling right? cot at home. Yeah, yeah. Everybody has the right to do that, and. I would have had the option to open her coffin um, at the funeral as well and and spend some more time with her. But I didn't know to ask for those things and and they weren't necessarily available back then, but I'm very grateful they are now. And is that a really key part to healing, that ability for a parent to feel like they've had adequate time? Yes. It's never enough. Yep. But, but yes, I think so. Uh, although it is individual as well and I think there's cultural differences, you know, and, and there has to be that awareness that for some cultures they have very different beliefs about the baby in utero and when, mm. um, when that life actually begins. So other mums listening might not, might not agree or this might not be their truth. Mm. But for me certainly it was, it was very healing and I do find that for most of the mums that I, and and dads or co-parents, yeah. whether it's, you know, a same-sex relationship, that it is helpful. Yeah, that's interesting. Is there ever the complete flip side where a mother just doesn't even want to see her baby? It's just all so painful. She just almost wants as fast as possible the, the memory to go away. Yeah. Is that a real feeling that some mums get? Definitely is, yes. Looking back on your experience, and thank you so much for sharing that with me, and I can't believe that I'm the one blubbering and you're so, so stoic about it. It's... um. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Looking back on that experience, is there anything that you could have or would have done differently to help you manage and process your grief? Um, Other than what I just said, I wish that I'd had that is available today. Yeah. I'm mostly very grateful for the support that I received. Most of it I went out and sought. So, I joined the SANS support group mm-hmm. that was that was available. There was one, I think it was in Terry Hills in those days, mm-hmm. and, and one at RPA. 
Um, and I went to those groups for a number of months and that was really, really helpful to be amongst other people who had experienced something like me. Yeah. I saw a Jungian psychiatrist for many years who I was able to talk openly with about my grief. I did body work and breath work and oh. I saw Tibetan pulses. Oh, and wow. So, yeah, so I did have lots of support throughout that process and I think that all of that has helped me to uh, get to where I am and to be able to support others, mm. you know, because it's really important, even though I have lived experience, when I'm sitting with a parent, it's not, it's, I might cry with them, yep. but it's not my grief. Yeah. It's my sadness for them. So the same way that you cried at hearing my story, yep. um, if, if my grief comes up, it's not triggering my own story, but I'm, I'm there within their story. And that's actually what I was just about to ask you. How do you find, you know, and I mean, this is your chosen calling now. How do you find stepping into that world at a personal level when you suffered such grief? <laughs> I always got to say, why are you doing this? But I can see why, because you're so incredible at it. Sometimes it's difficult. Um, through, through the organisation for whom I work, we have wonderful supervision and, um, you know, I'm able to have access to a counsellor and we have, we have clinical supervision in the same way that uh, a counsellor would. So that's really helpful and I think I just can't do too much of it. So I work part-time yep. and I make sure that I look after myself. So I love walking, I love swimming, mm-hmm. I, I do yoga, I meditate, I... I, I debrief when I need to um, and I take care of myself. So I've always, uh, you know, one of my main values is staying healthy and right. fit. So, yeah. And how long did you take to feel like you had recovered from that trauma or do you ever feel like you've recovered from that trauma? The first year for me was very difficult um, and I don't know whether it was because it was 32 years ago mm-hmm. because I do hear doctors saying differently now, but I was told to wait a year okay. before I fell pregnant again. So we waited a year and then it took another two years to fall pregnant. I had some secondary infertility and that was hell. Yeah. That was really yep. hard. Yep. And then I had we had our next pregnancy, which was very difficult because I was so anxious. Yes, um, I would have loved some more support through that. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so it was a number of years. I think having our next baby, there was lots of, you know, you're worried about are they breathing, is everything okay? Yeah. You're sort of because you've had the worst thing happen. Yeah. So you, you're not you're no longer naive and thinking these things don't happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but you have two very healthy grown babies now. <laughs> and two granddaughters as oh. well who are... An absolute delight. By the way, what do doctors say now? You said a moment ago doctors have different recommendations now. What do they recommend for falling pregnant again now? Well, I think it varies, but what they do is they they monitor the mother's physical health, so to make sure that their um, you know uterus is contracted and that they're they're physically ready for another baby. Um, I think it's also important for the the parents themselves to monitor their emotional health Mm -hmm. as to how ready they are. But the reality is that a lot of the mums um, today are choosing to have babies later 
And so they also have to think about their biological clocks yep. and and so that sometimes speeds the process up a bit. So doctors will be recommending falling pregnant earlier if, you know, they're mentally and physically able to. If they're able to, yes, and, and I wish in a way that that had been my situation. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's, you know, I've sat in appointments with people three months later and the doctors have said, you can start trying. Yeah, okay. So when we have a loved one experience a miscarriage or a stillbirth, what can we do to best support them? So there's the practical ways, you know, a hot meal, a massage voucher, mm-hmm. doing some cleaning. If there's other children, looking after them. Yep. If they're at school, doing drop-offs, pickups, things like that can be really, really helpful. Okay. Emotionally, I think the most important thing is to try to be comfortable sitting in the space and not being afraid of silence. So being there for whatever the person needs. Um, and if you're talking about about the mum, that, you know, you're there for her, you're there to hear her story and just know that you can't fix anything. Mm, yes. So you've just got to be there. But it's also really important to be curious and to and to hear the story and if the baby's been named, to use the baby's name. And I think another thing I'd like to mention is that if your friend's baby had survived, you would be a part of their life. If you're good yes, friends and yep. let's say your friendship's going to last, yep. you'd be there for the naming day ceremony or the baptism mm-hmm. christening. You'd be there for the first birthday. You'd be there to see the child in their school uniform yep. going off to their first day of school. Yep. Those milestones are important to be there for even if they're not happening because the parent has not just lost their baby, they've lost all of those, yep, those things moments. that you imagine when you're pregnant yep. or even when you're planning a pregnancy. Yep. Are there any mistakes or traps that people fall into when trying to be supportive? You know, just the things that you're not meant to say, like, you know, oh, at least you were only so many weeks pregnant or maybe this was for the best or, you know, what are some of those traps? Yeah, avoiding platitudes. Um, it's better not to say anything than to, because you can't make the person better, so you're not there to fix it. Um, and it's also really important that you don't project onto your friend your own beliefs. Mm. So you might have a faith that gives you a lot of comfort, but you don't necessarily expect that that's going to be comforting to your friend. So I think it's 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 really allowing um, your friend to have the control and to be there and listen and to respond authentically mm. and honestly without trying to make it okay. What about if a loved one has shut down? You know, maybe they're not responding to messages. Maybe they're, you know, just not wanting to accept help. Is there a point where you just turn up with the hot meal or you keep kind of forcing yourself upon them or do you respect that silence? I think it's important to respect what is needed by that person, but I think it's also important to turn up with the hot meal. Yeah, kind of a balance. Um, you know, contactless, yeah. And I also saw someone um, talking the other day, it was on a, a, a short video that I watched about grief, where they talked about their friend not wanting to speak. They didn't want phone calls. 
And this friend sent a text every day with just checking you're there. And her friend would text back an asterisk. Yeah. Just to go yep. in response. So I'm not talking, I'm I'm not engaging, but yeah, I'm here. Mm. Because you can worry. Yeah. And so that that's something. And I think persisting. So for example, I hear a lot of people talking about how their friends don't invite them because, oh, they know there'll be babies there or there'll be triggers or they don't think they're up to it. I think it's important to invite your friend and include them. With the proviso, though, that totally understand if if it's too much or you don't want to, but I, I wanted to let you know and give you the option. That's actually a really good point and it also speaks back to our example earlier about going back to work. I can imagine that the uncomfortableness of other people would really exacerbate some negative emotion um, and that feeling of, you know, walking into the office and everyone looks down and doesn't want to look you in the eye because they're just uncomfortable with how they should deal with it or finding out your friends have been to a baby shower and you weren't included in it. I can imagine how uh, that would add to the stress. Absolutely. And um, in terms of walking into the the office or the workplace for the first time, I often suggest that if it's possible that it would be good to do that not on your first day back at work. Mm. So, you know, visit your workplace, have a coffee, have a chat, and also to have a a private meeting with your manager and let them know how you're you're going and what's important to you, um, what what you're comfortable talking about, when you're comfortable um, sharing. It's not the appropriate time in a meeting um, to ask questions. But I think everybody needs to have their own, their, their control over the return to the workplace. And a transition is often good, not going back to your job full-time straight away. Yeah. It can be very difficult. Yes, I can absolutely imagine that. What about dads and mates? You know, <laughs> Blokes can be complex little creatures sometimes when it comes to their emotions. Some men, you know, a lot more open and vulnerable and others not so much. Any tips for mates and how they, you know, men, I guess, approaching men and even women approaching dads that have lost a baby? Everyone grieves in their own way. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's there's typical gender sort of stereotypes around grief. Yeah. But not necessarily. So it's it's important to understand and acknowledge that everyone does grieve differently and that the way that one person grieves is okay, even if it's different to another. And often a couple will grieve differently. Um, and part of them coming to terms with with each other and what's happened is is understanding each other's grief. So as outreach workers, we also provide information about different styles of grief so that people can understand that the way they're feeling is actually normal, even if it's not the same as the next person. Yeah, okay. And that's a really good point as well about how is your loved one going to deal with this? Is the fact that they're not wanting to talk about it and not wanting to go there, is that you know a negative sign or is that just a way that they're processing it? And I guess you're saying that it's really everyone will grieve in their own ways. Yes, and and often, um, and you know, this was my experience that the grief for me when our baby Jessica died was was different to my husband. And I think I was so acutely 
in the grief having and also the shock of giving birth that it was sort of his role to look after me yeah, a bit. I, I was and, imagining And put that. his grief off a bit, you know, and so. And is there a danger there that that grief isn't dealt with because, you know, the father has taken that more functional role and protective role? Is, is it important to make sure that then at, at some appropriate point, you know, his grief is dealt with as well? I think so. I think it's important to be aware and to be open um, and to have those conversations, but it's easy to the the horse to water, but you yeah. can't make it drink. So, so yeah, I think um, I think being aware and keeping the the dialogue open, and finding a way to include your baby in your lives. So, if your partner doesn't want to talk about the baby and you do, that can be really really yeah. difficult. So, finding a middle ground so that there is some perhaps some ritual around it. So for example, someone might not be able to talk about it, but it might be okay for them to light a candle together, mm-hmm. you know, with a photo and just spend a minute in silence that yep. this is the time we're giving to our baby today and to our grief. And and that's okay for us. How do external groups such as Red Nose and Sands help during these times? I mean, we touched quite a lot at the start and I think that gave a, a pretty good summation. Is there anything else you'd like to add around such great programs like that? Yeah, so uh, Red Nose provides counselling, which is wonderful and that's also free and that's either individuals or a couple. Well, it's not couples counselling, it's, it's providing grief counselling as a couple um, but also support groups, really wonderful support groups. There's um, support groups for pregnancy loss, specifically for stillbirth and newborn death loss, for termination for medical reasons. There's a support group for for this loss. Um, there's a pregnancy after loss support group. Some of them are online, some of them are face-to-face. So I would encourage anybody who is in this situation to seek out the support of a group and be amongst other people. It can feel very isolating. You feel like this has happened to you um, and nobody else. Of course, it's different now with online. You know, you can get on and lose yourself in that rabbit hole. But, yeah, the support groups are amazing. And there's also so many sources, uh, resources there for friends, colleagues, grandparents. Is that right? So where would they go to find those resources for, for, you know, somebody listening now who who is experiencing this and wants to be the best supportive friend they can be? Where would they go for those extra resources? So the Red Nose and the Sands Australia websites. Mm-hmm. There's also an English website, which I'm, I quite like, that's called Tommy's. And they have some wonderful short videos of of people being interviewed. And while it's in England and it's not exactly the same, there's some really good information there as well. Finally, Jan, for someone listening who wants to best support their loved one going through miscarriage or stillbirth, if you were going to summarise our best approach, the overarching themes when we're supporting our loved one, how would you sum it all up? I'd sum it up by saying there's two areas. There's the practical area, which includes things like cooking a meal, doing some cleaning, washing the dishes, looking after siblings, so doing school drop-offs, childcare runs, things like that. And then there's the emotional support where you sit with 
the person who is grieving in the liminal space Mm. that is their deep grief shock. You're not trying to fix anything. You're just sitting. Not trying to fix anything. Silence is okay. Silence is absolutely okay. In fact, it's really important. And it's also important to know that that person who's sitting in in that space, um, there's a, a theory called the ring theory, and the person who is suffering this loss or whether it be a trauma or whatever, mm-hmm. they're in the centre and they're the person that needs all of the comfort to come to them. Yep. And for them to be able to dump out, so to be able to express their sadness, their grief, their mm-hmm. fear, their anxiety, whatever, outwards. And the people in the next circle yep. around, so the circles are concentric. Yep. Like a bullseye. Might be their yeah, their partner or their parent or a sibling, mm-hmm. and they dump out, they they talk to them, and then those people provide that comfort, non-judgmental. Yeah. They can sit and cry with them and feel the grief mm-hmm. with them, but they don't lean on them, they don't dump back in. If they need support, then they go to the next layer. The next ring out. Yeah. I love this. Got yes. It. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's a great summation. And also just to throw in there your comment about using their name and knowing that that you are now a part of this child's life forever. That's right. Jan, thank you so much for not only sharing your story, but also for your amazing advice today. Oh, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Healthy Her was presented by me, Amelia Phillips. Producer, Tina Matalov. Theme music composed by Matthew Dwyer. Executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. For more tips and insights on this topic, visit my show notes at ameliaphillips.com.au. If you like my podcast or think other mums might find it helpful, please spread the word by sharing a link to your network of fellow mums. And feel free to drop me a line on Instagram anytime. I'd love to hear from you. Listener.